The Melting Pot. Hosted by Dominic Munkhaus. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot Podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Munkhaus. This is the show where I get to talk to entrepreneurs or business authors about doing things differently and the success that that has brought them. Today, I'm talking to Chris Donnelly. Chris is the founder and CEO of a digital agency, Verb. And he's 27 and he's got a fantastic business. Started the business whilst at university, never had another job, just worked for himself, going from strength to strength. Just a fantastic inspirational story. Some great things from Chris about how he has grown his business and what he and his business partner Ben do differently. My name is Chris Donnelly. I'm the founder and managing director of Verb Brands, a digital agency that works exclusively for luxury brands. The business actually incorporated in 2011 on Halloween. Not entirely sure why that is, but I was at university. I'd been involved in a couple of tech startups when I was particularly young, um, which had done quite well, but then had, had failed because of uh, was sort of underestimated the market and underestimated not having any money. So I was at university, and I sort of promised I wouldn't promise myself that I wouldn't run another business again. And then in second year of university, I effectively wanted to <laughs> make some money, therefore started building websites for like local businesses around Leamington Spa, so I built like a website for like a cobbler and a fish and chip shop and they were like £400 websites and I was doing them myself and then um, sort of did it as like a hobby and also like a sort of slightly to make some money at uni and then in third year I got to a point where more and more people were asking for the work that we did which is when I then went out and found some like freelance designers and developers to join um, and sort of do the work for me and by the time I came to leaving university, I had a, a job lined up at a bank, which in the end I actually turned down to, to do the agency full-time. So we actually launched Verb formally as a business in 2014, and that came with like an office in, uh, in Shoreditch, in, um, in the Truman Brewery in Brick Lane. And I suppose the reason we actually decided to launch the business as opposed to like taking a job or you know, packing in the freelance thing was that I think we spotted something in the market for the niche that we went after, which was, I, th- I think, at the time, especially, there was a gap for luxury brands of being quite underserved by uh, digital agencies, and so we sort of hung our hat on that and pursued that as a as a sector. Okay, who do you work for, and what do you do for them? Um, so nowadays, we work for much larger, much more established uh, luxury brands, like you know, household names. So we work for companies like Jimmy Choo or Clive Christian. Uh, we work for Claridge's, the Woolsey. So like the sort of the upper end of fashion and hospitality and beauty within the luxury sector. Um, so that's like a, a little bit of an insight into our clients. And, and what we do for them now is that we are almost a full service agency for a brand from a digital point of view. So we'll provide them with the building of uh, websites or applications, or we'll also do their SEO for them, their content creation, we'll do their social, their paid advertising, paid social, PPC. So we can now provide the brands that we work with, you know, almost like a one-stop shop for their requirements. And often they'll come in with one requirement, which might be like a technical fix or like a technical problem. We'll deliver something good for them. And then it will build into a more retained service over a longer period of time. So the clients you're solving uh, a problem for, 
What's the business problem that you're solving? So typically it will be around luxury or, or a luxury brand has always been something that's being considered to be above the rest. You know, it's, it's normally a more expensive good, it's a more expensive service and also a more renowned name. And I suppose historically people have had a much more greater sense of brand loyalty and therefore luxury brands have been able to exist without having to necessarily compete on the same terms as everyone else because they rely on their story and their heritage and so on. But now with this changing market, you've got so much more choice for the consumer. You've got so many more brands that have been launched that are targeting the same thing. If you look at like afternoon tea, which is quite like a, a staple for some of the luxury hotels and restaurants we work for in London, 20 years ago or 10 years ago, there were so few options for afternoon tea that it was like a particularly desired thing. Uh, whereas now there's hundreds of options. So people have much more choice now and much more as a generation, especially the younger generations are much more, much less brand loyal. And so what we do for our luxury brands is bring them up to date online and find a way of communicating with new customers, but basing that on their heritage, their brand, their quality and so on. So we can still sell their products to the new audience from a luxury context and compete with all the new brands, all the choice and so on. So it's, it's effectively, it's, it's customer acquisition and retention, but for a slightly new market. And why do you think that the luxury brands, when, when you started the business, why did you feel that luxury brands were underserved or poorly served? I think the challenge is like if you're, if you are a luxury brand, you, you speak a certain way, you think a certain way, you want to associate yourself a certain way. And I think that a lot of agencies who do everything kind of are meaningless to luxury brands who are so exclusive in the way that they choose everything, you know, their suppliers, their products, their materials. And the same mindset actually falls into choosing those that are going to represent your brand. So when in a pitch or, you know, you're up against four other agencies and let's say three of them do everything, you can play the fact that you are a luxury specialist because you are, you know, you hire all your people because they love luxury, you know, you build your services around the fact that you serve only luxury brands. You inherently become very good at serving that niche. And I think that when looking at the market there, there really wasn't any any agencies at the time that were sort of hanging their hat on just serving luxury and premium brands um, within that market. There were a few and we took inspiration from those. But I think we're trying to push it now to sort of an area that hasn't, hasn't been taken before. How do you go about hiring people who only love luxury? So it, do, it does sound quite funny to say that aloud. Um, <laughs> but I suppose the thing is you get, you get a certain sector of the market, for example, like, you know, you think like a 27-year-old guy who's really into sports probably loves working on Adidas and Nike and, and, and whatever, like sports brands. And there's also a segment of the market who are really aspirational, love visiting the best restaurants, the best hotels, you know, buying the best products, being aspirational towards the best goods, you know. And I think it's those people that we try and find and bring into the business because they have a, an unbelievable amount of passion for the actual brands they work for, which is so important now to the the new sort of millennial workforce is this, I want to work for brands that make sense to me, I want to work for brands who are good brands that I would buy myself. And so it's about finding people who sort of associate themselves with our brands. And that's obviously not possible when we also work with companies like Sunseeker, so no one in the agency can buy a Sunseeker. Um, but still, I think it's there's, there's an aspirational element to it that we try and pair up with. Does that mean you have a particular type of workforce? Not throughout the agency, I think there are, there are you know, we have an amazing team of developers who don't, I wouldn't say they necessarily love luxury, um, but the work that we do is very design focused, it's very um, particular, it's very specific, 
and it has a certain style. So you could say they like the style of the work that we do. I don't necessarily think they love the brands that we work for, but the commercial teams, the people who deal with our clients, who run our marketing retainers, who do Verb's own marketing, they all love luxury. They all love premium brands. They all love that style. And therefore, yeah, we, we kind of we kind of try and find them. So you started in 2014? Yeah, I think officially launching business in 2014, but the business is, is technically older than that. And yeah. you're, it's 2018 now. And yeah. where's your run rate revenue got to? About 3 million run rate now a and, month. And how many staff? About uh, 44, 45. Okay, yeah. growing fast? Yeah, I think... Uh, we're showing like an incredible quarterly growth at the moment. I think I think we've always kind of taken for granted our growth a little bit. Um, so we were always growing quite quickly with like you know 100% growth a year, for example. And then things did slow down, and we sort of thought we'd normalised. And then we did acquire another company last year, and it kind of turbocharged everything for us because we got a new set of clients who didn't you know who were only serviced through SEO and PPC. So we could cross sell to them all the other things that we do also layering on like marketing to a new database of customers that you know, love that brand that we bought and then having a lot more people in the office a bigger office and I think people just got re- really re-motivated again and it has you know it's been tough like uh, I think bringing two cultures together is very difficult um, but it's kind of turbocharged us again so last year I think we we're doing you know a million run rate whereas now it's more like three million run rate so the growth rate in the last year has been phenomenal again but we didn't necessarily see that coming and so, 40 people fast growing, serving a particular niche. Would you also say that, do you see yourselves as a premium agency? Are you significantly more profitable than other agencies? Does serving premium brands translate into profit for you, or do you have to be price competitive? I think we are still price competitive. I think it would be nice to assume that, you know, like a luxury brand spent lots of money on what they did, but often you actually find that they're quite because they're not necessarily the biggest businesses in the world, they're quite niche in, the, in their own right. So the budgets aren't enormous, but I think, yeah, I mean, we are, we're certainly a, a good profit agency. I think we're doing 20, 25% net profit a month at the moment, which I think is, is very good for the size that we are. But yeah, I mean, I think we still have, you know, we still pitch, we still get knocked down on price, we still have to negotiate, we still, you know, we still hear that if you work for the biggest brands in the world who aren't luxury, they have much more money to spend a year. But I think it's consistency now. We've got these retained services where it, the more we deliver results for our clients, the more they're willing to spend with us. So I think we get a lot more client growth than necessarily new business nowadays. And how many, what proportion of your revenues now recur only? Uh, about 75, 80% now. Okay, fantastic. Makes it much more reliable. Yeah, I think, I think what it does, is it, it actually has allowed us to stop making rash decisions about stuff. So with so much of the revenue retained, and that's literally retained, like monthly contracted, month-to-month retainers. The other side of the business is more the project-based side of the business, but a lot of that's stage payments. So we can have months where we don't need to bring in any new business. And then if we do, it's a, it's a bonus. And sometimes we're pushing business into the following month, which is a nice place to be. And it stops us taking on projects that aren't profitable or stops us you know, having to take on a project because we need the money. Um, whereas now we're able to sort of sit back and say, is this the right client for us? You know, do we want to pitch this? Um, rather than you know, a couple of years ago, we'd probably take anything that came in, and you know, you're coming close to a month end, and you sort of think to yourself, you know, I've got salaries coming up, I've got VAT bill coming up, I've got POI coming out, I need money into the business, and therefore, a lot of what we've done is is <coughs> build a much more stable, you know, structured agency that 
you know, isn't that reliant on new business, which is a very nice place to be. How much new business do you pitch for? What did you pitch for in the last tournament? Yeah, I mean, I probably having just said that seems a bit daft, but we have probably pitched for maybe 20, 30 opportunities in the last 12 months, maybe. And how many did you win? I mean, I think we lost two or three. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so you're basically winning everything you pitch for? At the moment, we've got, we've got very strong win rate but again like we're not you know as an agency we have we have a lot of interest in the market for us like we get we get contacted a lot and we get to turn away a lot so I suppose the pitches that we're going for we're not having to go for everything so the ones that we do go for we have a lot of time to focus on them you know they are the right project for us like we're not trying to pitch something that's not in our skill set and so I think all of that helps and they lead into a pitch and also like you might be you know we might be winning a new project in a month but it might it might be a a digital marketing retainer for five grand so it doesn't make a huge amount of difference to that month but it's the cumulative effect of bringing on many many clients doing that with you and building out the team slowly rather than having to take on you know like a 200 grand project and then having to hire to fill it and so on so it's, it's a bit more stable what we're doing now what's the plan the plan is i think i think when, once we got to this size it's funny every time you go to like a dinner or something everyone's always saying you know you should sell the business because you're at a place where I suppose it's become sellable, but I think we set out with a mission a while ago, which was to take the the business to a place where we were considered and recognised as the leading agency for luxury brands. Originally, it was the UK. You know, then we were like, we want to be the leading agency in Europe. And as as time has gone on, we just opened up a, an office in Los Angeles, and I think now it's like we want to be recognised as one of the leading agencies in the world for luxury brands because it's it is quite niche. So I think that's. We wouldn't necessarily be competing with networks the whole time. Um, we wouldn't have to hit that sort of unbelievable size. We could still remain relatively small. Um, but that's kind of the aim, is to try and be recognised as one of the best. And you were saying that you've got a, a secret tool in your tool bag when we were talking earlier that helps you close some of these deals. <laughs> I think that there is a lot between an initial meeting and a formal pitch and I think that you know we're very we very regularly take the initial meeting with people and that's kind of where we, we decide whether we'll we'll go ahead and pitch them. If we decide we're gonna pitch them though we you know it's like the most it's like military, you know, we, we draw up like who who on the on the brand side do we need to talk to, who do we need to hear from, you know, what do they like, what don't they like, um, and then we gear everything around that. So in the run up to an actual formal proposal or pitch, I, I think that we get to the point where the client already trusts us. We've already done a lot of prep work for them. You know, we might have taken them for dinner. And I think that building the relationship before is also a way of us saying, do we want to work with this person? And so I think, I think I don't know. I mean, I think the, the secret is, a, is, is an obvious one. We try and become very close with the people that we're, we're pitching. And I think if you, if you think about like a brand manager, they're, they're looking for someone to trust. They're looking for someone to actually get results for them. And also they're looking for someone to do the work that they can then just approve. Uh, and if they therefore trust you and they know that you care about them and the brand and you care about their success and you're interested in them, then I think that if you think about competing against another agency that just submits a proposal, it feels very different. One of the other things, uh, how's your work-life balance? I would say that for the first time ever, it's, it's, it's not bad. Like I said, I mean, I, I think the business formally went live 2014, but I've kind of been working on and off on it since 2011. And so I worked quite hard alongside university, finished university, but I was still working like a crazy day every day, which was like 
five or six hours on work. It was five or six hours on revision um, on the run up to exams and things. And then the second I left university, it was like, it's not, it wasn't uncommon for us to be doing uh, like 18 hour days. I think we did 18 hour days for like three years. And I think we came into this year off the back of buying DVD Media and um, off the back of a sort of a merger. And it was quite a tough merger. Commercially, it was very good, but culturally, it was very tough. And we were honestly working every hour there was. We were barely sleeping. And I think coming into this year and hitting a place where we're making a lot of profit, where the teams are very stable, we're growing again, we've got good team leads, you know, we've given ourselves multiple bandwidth because we've hired like finance manager, talent manager, office manager, you know, all these different positions that really help give us more bandwidth. It does mean that I've been going home at like 7 p.m. as opposed to like 1 a.m., um, which for me and for my girlfriend, I think is a, is a very good thing. But I, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't plan on, you know, chilling. I just think it's nice to be able to have, you know, not be needed. So if I work hard now or I work late now, which I still regularly do, it's because I'm choosing to as opposed to I'm, being, I'm having to work on something. Whereas now I can say tonight I want to try and do an you know, employee engagement program or work on our values or something, something that's going to add value as opposed to like trying to fix a problem that's happening. What were the cultural, some of the difficult cultural things you had to overcome? Well, I think that when we, when we acquired the agency, they, they had been kind of stagnant for a while. And that, they had great clients and they were doing a good job for their clients. But a lot of their clients, they weren't. Some of their key clients, they were, but everything else was kind of getting a mediocre service. But it also meant that because the, the business had kind of stagnated a little bit and they kind of knew they knew they were selling. I think that the passion behind it had gone. So a lot of the team members were chilling, you know, not taking their work too seriously, probably looking around for other jobs. So when we arrived, it was like, hi, I'm Chris, I'm your new MD. You know, we're based in Tower Hill. We're building a new massive office for us. Um, this is my vision. I think a lot of people were like, oh shit. So we had a lot of resignations almost immediately. And then as months went on, we realized that people probably weren't the right cultural fit for what we were doing, which is like, work really hard but also like have lots of fun and then also I think that going in a lot of people in their team you know secretly had been given the wrong expectation of what their role would be in our agency and so that was very tough to kind of align that retrospectively to people so I think that that was very challenging like I said commercially from a client point of view it was really really successful and from a you know, finance profit point of view, it's worked out brilliantly. But just culturally, it was difficult having two offices. I was working in their office in Soho from, you know, like eight till six until they all left. And I was back in the Shoreditch office with my Shoreditch team. We might be working late on a project or something and then finishing off the day doing like credit control and stuff. So it was just a very hard period of time. What core values do you have? Is fun, is fun one of them? Is fun one of our values? Do you um, have them laid down? Yeah, we, we did codify them, yeah. It's fun one of them. Um, I think one of them is like, don't take yourself too seriously. I think one of them, I think we stole one of them, which is like, don't be afraid to be a bit weird. And then it's more about like empowerment, independence. What's next? More acquisitions? Probably no for now. I think we did one, it was very successful. We've bedded into our new office that's working out really well. We didn't raise, we didn't, sorry, we didn't give away any equity to raise funding for the last acquisition that we did. We did it through um, like private lending in the bank. And therefore we've been paying back that money now, which we're pretty much uh, at a point where we have. So I think now we've just opened up LA and I think establishing a, a satellite office there for you know, account management, uh, sales and marketing is a, a priority for me. And 
then I think it's just to continue to grow organically and really work on the structures of the business because it's a very different business now. We need we need team leads to be able to manage their areas of the business, need to control their own P and Ls, be able to deal with their team. We need to get our talent management and HR into place where everyone's very happy with it. So I think at the moment it's co- it's kind of about like consolidating and strengthening our position. Um, and then I suppose next year we'll then look to try and grow a bit more aggressively. Not that we're not growing now, but I think it's more like we're taking work as it comes in. We still have never had a salesperson. We still don't do any outbound. Uh, we still don't do any sort of aggressive marketing. So I think next year that's something that we might do. So you've grown more than 100% a year most of the years you've been in business, but you don't do any sales. Where, did, where does your sales come from? Do people just ring you up? Yes. <laughs> We will get contacted on a week-to-week basis by the brands that we want to work with almost and, every week. And is that is that because you've focused in, you've picked the niche, and in your niche you get yourself on the pitch list and have done for the last four years? Is that is, is that how the thinking has, has played out? That, that was certainly the aim. I think I think because because of our positioning, if, if you are a luxury brand, I think that we only serve luxury brands. We've got incredible case studies. Our clients are always very willing to like stand up and, and speak for us about our work. Um, so that's like a huge part of our pitch process is the first thing I'll say is like, who do you want to meet from our client list? And then our clients will just step up and, and tell them about our results. But yeah, I mean, we don't have any salespeople. We never have. I suppose I'm the closest thing we've ever had to a salesperson, but I'm only ever doing, only ever taking inbound inquiries or you know, someone from my network might say, like, hi, Chris, I've got this brand that we're working with. So that's it really, I mean, you know, we, we run a lot of events, so we do run like training events for our clients and I suppose prospective clients. So we do occasionally reach out to brands to say, I think you'd enjoy this event, um, but it's a very slow burn. Like if someone comes to an event, they'll probably work with us a year later. And then we also run this thing called Trend, which is now becoming like one of the more recognized events for luxury brands in London. And obviously everyone who comes to that gets exposure to Verb. And then, you know, we'll get them on our email database, we'll send them like, come to our next event or come to a dinner. I think we, we did a dinner across the road from here, like with the top hotels that we work with, the top restaurants we work with, and like three restaurants and hotels that we don't work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and that worked really well because we had a breakfast where one of our clients said every pound we spend with Verb, we get 20 in return basically. And so everyone at the table just goes, okay, can we, <laughs> can we talk after? <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, we can. But our events actually, actually make money. We don't lose money on our events. So uh, okay, so what you when you do these training? So most people would say, "Hey, we want to do some training for prospective clients," and you say, "Yeah, we do too, but we're going to charge them to come." Yeah, basically. And what's what's the what's the cover cover price? What sort of fee are we talking about? It's like training's like ninety nine quid per head. Okay. And then the events like one hundred and fifty quid, or if you're coming to the VIP dinner afterwards, it's like two hundred and fifty quid. So again, it's not it's it's not cheap dinner. Two hundred and fifty pound VIP dinner. No. Premium brand dinner for premium brands. Yeah, and I think you know if if brands are coming, we'll always be like we'll always work with the brand to give them a good price, and we'll, we'll you know we'll, we'll try, if it's a perfect brand for us, we'll try and get them in. But our speakers are from like the top brands in the world, uh-huh. so if you're from one of the brands, it makes sense to come because there's workshops in the day. It's a half day event. You know, there's a, a keynote at the start. There's different workshops run by different suppliers who sponsor the event. And then as you come later into the evening, you get a chance to have like one-on-ones with specialists about like problems, which are all booked in advance. 
and then as the evening goes on it becomes drinks and networking and then for that select few that we choose they come to our VIP dinner. So more military precision, a bit like your pitch process, <laughs> these things, these, were, they, were they as well choreographed when you started? Or no, no, they, have you, have you, were they slightly <laughs> shambolic and, and are now amazing? Only because I'm only hoping that as I listen to you speak about these things, I just think, I hope they weren't that well organised at the beginning because it makes me feel even more inadequate. No, I mean, we, um, at the start, we, we did, like, in the same way that we sort of created Verb and created the branding around it, we were like, let's not just do an event because events are a bit lame and agency run events themselves can be so boring. Um, so we were like, let's create a brand that people actually want to come to. So we created Trend, we did all the branding for it properly, we gave it a website, we gave it a purpose, contacted big speakers and we said, you know, we've got this massive event that we do. Um, <laughs> and we managed to get like a couple of good speakers to our first one. The first one was free and um, we realised that it cost quite a lot of money to put on. It was a good event but half, half the people dropped out on the night. And then the feedback was we'd love to do more like one-on-ones with the speakers and with you guys and so we took all that feedback I hired someone called Clara who's our um, head of marketing and she then led the program of developing these events and it's been amazing because working with someone who's got the same sort of passions I do about establishing an event in and of itself like trend exists outside of uh, but just happens to be associated with it Mm -hmm. so now the events are a lot of them are break even or they turn some profit and we just put it back into developing more events we've just launched a new event called like London Women in Digital a lot of my team are are women and it's like a big a big conversation piece at the moment is about like equality of of wages and also you know stepping up and and taking on uh you know your salary negotiation or taking on like asking for more money and things like that and it's it's these topics that obviously are very passionate so I just said any any money that we make from the events let's try out a new event we came up with London Women Digital and we ran one in London recently. We had to start turning people away. It was like an oversubscribed event. People coming to tell us about their stories. And, um, and so we're going to launch lots more events, actually. I think ever more like niche. So we want to do like trend fashion, trend hospitality, but as their own pieces now. But they're like, they're more like, I suppose they're more like conferences now rather than like an evening. Yeah, no, I started a thing called Commerce Futures, e-commerce futures a few years ago with... Uh, Jamie Hancock's and that was fab getting e-commerce retailers in to tell their story yeah absolutely fascinating same thing we have people coming to hear examples of other brands who who'd mostly made the mistakes that they wanted the people in the audience not to repeat yeah um, which is which is good um, if you went back in time two questions I have for you if you went back in time and in your case not very long ago <laughs> um, what what would you do differently there's so many things. I think like I think like obviously we've ended up in a good position, but to what you were saying earlier, I've made so many mistakes over the years, like just thousands that I can I could reel off. Each time that you make the mistake, it feels shit when you make it, and you're like you know either it leads to a loss of a client, a loss of a team member, you know the loss of efficiency or whatever it may be, or you know the missed opportunity of something. But in reality, all you're doing by making shit loads of mistakes is you probably won't make the same one again. I don't necessarily regret any of our mistakes. The one mistake I actually probably regret is more like a, I've had a bit, bit of a change in perspective on things. I used to be really pissed off when people resigned. And I used to be really pissed off when people were leaving. And nowadays it's more something that we, we kind of celebrate. Like if someone's leaving now, we'll throw them a leaving do, we'll be the ones putting the money behind the bar. 
will be you know, contributing to GIFs and so on because I want that person to leave with a really good impression of Verb and with a really good impression of us. And the more you're like that, the ironic thing is the more people will stay, the more people will sort of respect the brand. And then the other, the other sort of mistake I can remember is I, years ago, wanted to become one of those companies that gave a part of its profit away. And I never did it because I was sort of scared of the position that we we're in, in terms of when we were growing, we had no cash. You know, when we were growing, we were working these crazy hours and never time to think about it. And now we've just implemented that we'll be giving away 5% of our profit towards trying to support the conversation behind equality of wages. We're also going to try and support an environmental cause. Uh, we're going to try and transform the office to being you know, like a carbon neutral place. Um, and I wish I'd done a lot of that stuff earlier because it's not actually that hard to do. And when you finally get into a position when you're actually making money, then you've got money, so you should do something with it, is, is kind of the, the thinking. So I wish I'd done that earlier, basically. Business books, particular one you'd recommend, one you've given, one you've read again, one you thought was great? I'm not really a big business book reader, to be honest, but there was one that I read in the early days called Give and Take, uh-huh. which I thought was just the most fantastic book. It's, it's that whole thing of about reciprocity, like you were saying earlier. I think like you've got few ways to try and impress someone, and if you actually help someone, then when they come to need the thing that you do, it all does come back around. And the book is actually about like tracking the lifetime of people who give naturally, like help people naturally, versus those people who take from situations very naturally. So you meet them all throughout life, like people who are always trying to get a slightly better situation for themselves, often at the detriment of others. You also have people who sort of selflessly always help and you watch the careers of these people as they develop and get older and it's the givers who have a bit of a slower start but as they then progress in their lives they do so much better because they've got so many people in the world who are sort of not necessarily indebted but just have a really positive outlook towards that person. So that, that's the book that kind of built my agency really because it became the thing, I wrote an article years ago that called doing a favour a day and that was kind of based on that book and it was kind of based on the idea that I, I didn't want to do sales I didn't want to do cold calls I didn't want to do any of that sort of stuff that makes you feel really cringe but the doing a favour for someone each day is something that I have actually kept up not every single day but I still to this day will always be trying to do something for someone and it's amazing how like you know we've just won I won't name their name but we have just won one of the biggest luxury brands in the world and it came from someone that I did the smallest favour for about a year ago and they they got the job rang me and they were like are you up for it and I was like 100% (laughs) Um, and so the the pitch process was just a lot more straightforward you know we had a lot probably a a lot less frosty interaction with them at the start we got probably all, all the information we needed so yeah I mean that's something that I'd keep up and that book is kind of the basis for that to be honest Chris, thank you very much. Thank you for doing me this favour today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, mate. Thank you for listening to the Melting Pot podcast. Please, we're now on iTunes. Give us some feedback and on Stitcher and SoundCloud. That'd be fantastic. And sign up to the newsletter over on medium.com slash foundry-media. You can sign up for the weekly newsletter and read the blog. Till next time. Goodbye. Thank you.